A very warm welcome to this series, Mindfulness Frame by Frame. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Willem Kuyken. I'm the director of the University of Oxford Mindfulness Centre, and I'm going to say a few words of introduction, both to the series and to my friend and collaborator, Professor Mark Williams. But first to say welcome to you all. You're all here probably for a number of shared reasons. The first is an interest in mindfulness. The second is that you've probably attended some form of mindfulness training, an MBCT program perhaps, or an MBSR program. And you're here because you want to learn more, you want to deepen your practice, you want to um, think about how you can develop and extend your practice beyond that course. And finally, I've got a hunch that there's also a sense of wanting to be part of a larger community of people who are doing this work alongside one another, and particularly a real sense of the common humanity across the world of people interested in this um, deepening and extending of mindfulness practice. Before we go into the series, I wanna just step back, if that's okay, and say a few words to contextualize what's happening with mindfulness and where this series sits into, sits in the wider field, if you like. I think it's fair to say <clears throat> that the mindfulness field is coming of age. It's developing a certain maturity. The science is now so much further along than it was 10 years ago. We have a real sense of where mindfulness and MBCT is effective, where it's potentially effective, and probably also where it's not effective. We're developing an understanding from the science of what works for whom and how. And if we look at the work of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for recurrent depression, which Mark Williams, Zindel Siegel, and John Teasdale developed, we've had an extraordinary arc of research asking first, does this program actually help people learn the skills to stay well? And the clear answer is, yes, it does. And about as well as the other mainstay approach, antidepressant medication. That's huge, absolutely huge. There are some two, 300 million people around the world right now who suffer from depression, some 1 billion who will suffer depression in their lifetime. To offer them, a way of learning the skills to stay well. That's a tremendous achievement of work in terms of the maturity of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. We're learning how to train MBCT teachers and how to do that well. We're learning how to make mindfulness more accessible. And I'll say more about that in a moment. And crucially, and the Oxford Mindfulness Center has just published some um, a document to this effect, we begin to think very hard about the ethics, the kind of compass that we need if we're going to do this work well and have a, an ethical compass to guide us in all that we do, training, teaching, and research. And the Mindfulness Center that um, Mark founded, and that I have um, the privilege of directing now, is premised on a sort of charitable foundation alongside a research arm. And it's a not-for-profit charity. And um, it's a charity that's mission is to make evidence-based MBCT accessible to those who might benefit. And I'll just say a few words about how what you're beginning this evening sits into the wider framework. And I've started to think of this as being a bit like a funnel. How do people come into mindfulness? Where do they start on their journey? Well, I think it's pretty clear. Hundreds of millions of people have now been introduced to mindfulness through probably three or four or five mindfulness apps and books, Calm, Headspace, Insight Timer, together have probably introduced in excess of 400 million people to mindfulness. Mark Williams and Danny Penman's book, Mindfulness, Finding Peace in a Frantic World, has been another way of introducing mindfulness to a very large group of people, well in excess of a million people. So this is how people are coming into the funnel. 
and being introduced to mindfulness. And what's very interesting is many of those people then say, where do I go next? What do I do now? How can I deepen and extend what I've learned? And what we're doing at the Oxford Mindfulness Center is beginning to offer curricula, MBCT curricula, the MBCT for depression curricula, but also the Finding Peace in a Frantic World face-to-face -face course. Um, around the world, we see MBSR courses, and we've also developed the MBCT for life curriculum. These are ways for people to really deepen and extend their learning. And that brings us to this series. People get to the end of those courses and they very often have this experience. Gosh, that was transformational. That was really helpful. And I feel like what I need now is something to keep this alive, to keep this um, deepening and extending. And how can we go further with this? And this program that Mark's going to be introducing this evening in the next few months, uh, Mindfulness Frame by Frame, meets that need. It helps people to think about how they can take their learning forwards. So just a few words about the curriculum before I hand over to Mark. Mark Williams throughout his career has been a really deep thinker around psychological science and the application of psychological science in terms of clinical, clinical psychological interventions. And, um, and this program is the product of Mark spending the last couple of years through his reading of psychological science, but also his own mindfulness practice, thinking about how can we help people who have learned MBCT or MBSR to, um, to really benefit from that psychological science and extend their practice. And I think you're gonna be introduced to that in the next um, couple, of, couple of months. Um, it's the first time that this is being um, introduced to a larger group of people. It's been piloted in a few other places in South Africa and uh, throughout the UK. So um, I hope you're as excited as I am to, um, to experience this for the first time. And I'll hand over to Mark in, in, in just a moment. Just wanna say a few words of practicality first. The first is to, um, to say thank you to you all for being here tonight, but also to those of you who've made a charitable donation to the, uh, to the Oxford Mindfulness Foundation. That's what enables us to do this work. Um, so thank you to those of you who've done that. Um, so we'll have a session in the moment and Mark will be guiding us and leading us in practice. And um, through the chat, we will be um, harvesting questions and themes in questions. And in the last 15 minutes or so, there'll be an opportunity um, to have those questions put to Mark um, via me. Um, I think that's probably all I want to say by words of practicality. And I'm gonna hand over now to my dear friend and colleague, um, Mark Williams, to, um, to guide you this evening and in the next couple of months um, on this new curriculum. Over to you, Mark. Thank you, Willem, and uh, thanks to everybody. So if we sit for a moment and just feel our body on the chair and arrive and allow everything we've been doing today to be around. Notice its echoes in the body and mind. If it's still there, if it's not, don't worry. And just noticing what it is that brings you here. What, what do I want for myself? And then letting your eyes open if they've been closed, taking the room again. And we'll continue that question. Why do we practice mindfulness? Why do we come again and again for some of us? Willems mentioned the clinical trials that say that it's effective and that's the bedrock of evidence. But we could do something else, but we've chosen mindfulness. And the brain science is very compelling, but there's something else as well. Some years ago, a meditation teacher got permission to offer a retreat in a Seattle woman's prison. 
seven women volunteered to go through a retreat, 10 hours a day for 10 days. The governor was skeptical, but he allowed the experiment to take place. He thought they'll never make it anyway, they'll drop out, but they did make it. And in interviews afterwards, they talked of experiencing profound changes, but it wasn't only their account, which was so striking. The governor continued to be skeptical, but even he admitted they're much more obedient now, that's as far as he would go. But the prison officers who worked most closely with the women saw something else. And one of them summarized it by saying, it's as if they've come alive. You can see it in their eyes. They've come alive. So added to the other reasons why we do mindfulness, why we practice mindfulness, why we train in mindfulness, why we teach mindfulness, because we know what it's like to have our energy and life draining away and we yearn to reclaim the experience of being alive. And we can see it in ourselves and we can see it in our participants. Now the energy drains away for many reasons. For some, it is trauma or loss that overwhelms us. For many others, it's when we get overwhelmed and driven to exhaustion, accumulating concerns and tasks and worries for ourselves, our work or our families that overwhelm us. And then what happens? Our attention becomes constantly captured by these concerns. We become preoccupied. And when this happens, self-judgment is never far away. An inner critic that every day seems to find new ways of fabricating an old message that we are failing in some way, that we're not good enough. But we stumble on, often a bit blinkered and unaware, losing our balance, regaining it, and then losing it again. We find ourselves overreacting to things perhaps, fearful, and we end up feeling joyless. And all of these things arise from being driven, driven to exhaustion. And we think it would be wonderful to find a way of changing. Meditation teacher Helen Ma suggests an alternative. What if nothing needs to change. Nothing. Instead, what if we need to do is to switch on the light, to see clearly what's happening? Then we may begin to see which old patterns of conditioning are increasing the overwhelm, but we can also see what work they are doing. What's the fear that keeps them going? And so we come to this eight week program, which aims to offer a taste of a new course that has been developed for those who are already familiar with mindfulness and want to explore other gateways into the practice. The aim is to see how mindfulness can help us let go of the struggle to get rid of the parts of ourselves we don't like. Instead to discover a source of light that will reveal more space, freedom and choice, even in the midst of the overwhelm. The signs of exhaustion are all too clear. Being preoccupied, judgmental, unawareness, off balance, reactive, fearful and joyless. It's not a happy list. The aim is to see if these very signs of overwhelm can become our teachers. So each session will include a talk introducing the theme of the week, followed by a meditation that you can incorporate into your daily practice if you choose for the following week. And then we'll have a Q&A within the session as well. And some of the talks will include recent psychological findings that offer fresh insights into the way our mind works, particularly the new research that suggests that every waking moment our understanding of the world is dominated by predicting what actions we need to take next. These potential actions are created or simulated in the jargon, simulated in the mind, and then captured and stored in our mental models of the world, the things that help us interpret the world, which are then updated each moment to guide our next action. And this goes on moment by moment by moment. And based on this prediction, the body elegantly allocates its resources as it gears up for action. 
And yet, much of what distresses us, and indeed exhausts us, is the creation of real or imagined actions that we don't actually need to take and may never take. So where can we enter this process and see what's happening? What's the way in? It turns out that the predictions and imagined actions in our mental models are colored by what is called feeling tone. That is the moment by moment readout of whether any contact with mind or body feels pleasant or unpleasant, soothing or painful, liked or disliked. It is the feeling tone that gives both direction and urgency to the possible action as it contains within it most of our past conditioning, both remote conditioning and recent conditioning. And because of this, feeling tone can be the place to stay a while to understand frame by frame our reactivity, our drivenness. As mindfulness teacher Joseph Goldstein says, mindfulness of feeling tone is one of the master keys that both reveals and unlocks the deepest patterns of our conditioning. So I'm going to say more about this in later weeks. For now, it's enough to know that the felt sense of this basic pleasantness or unpleasantness of a body sensation or sound or thought or feeling is natural and automatic and is happening every moment, whether we're aware of it or not. However, it's good to know that what can happen, especially when we're unaware of the feeling tones, most of them we are unaware of them, is that they press our buttons in some way. We wind up reacting to them in ways that can start a cascade of emotions that are completely understandable, but aren't always helpful. With practice, we can reduce the urgency and change direction. But we need to take it step by step. So each week we'll explore a different aspect of what exhausts us and how we can shine the light of mindful awareness on the process frame by frame that can reveal the sources of wisdom and freedom in the midst of that exhaustion. The meditations will be familiar, but into each we will drop a new element or graft a new element designed to reveal and unlock the old habits that get us stuck. So it'll be familiar, but new. I recall being in my second year of my psychology degree sitting waiting for a second year lecture to start by one of our professors in developmental psychology. And most of the people in the room were second year students like me. But just as the lecture was starting, a voice interrupted from the back row from a young man who was in his third year. Excuse me, he shouted rather impolitely. Is this the same set of lectures as last year? Because I came last year and I just wondered whether it was worth coming again. Quick as a flash, the professor responded, well, the data is all the same as I presented last year, but I've changed my mind about what they mean. The poor young man in the back row didn't know whether to stay or go. So perhaps the professor might have phrased it a little differently, but there's a truth in what he said. There's a sense in which there was no extra data, nothing more for the lad to learn, but lots more to understand. And that's true here too. Much will be familiar. But what I want to share over these weeks is what for me has become a treasure trove of new insights from the most ancient traditions and from psychological science. But before we turn to the theme for this week, let's take a short breathing space and feel free to stand and stretch as you take the breathing space if you, if you choose to do so. So let's take a breathing space. So letting your eyes close if that feels comfortable and noticing your posture. And step one of the breathing space, notice what, what's going on in your mind and body right now. What's the weather pattern like for you? Any thoughts going through your mind? Is 
any feelings, emotions. Sensations in the body. Impulses to act, perhaps. Acknowledge, acknowledging and allowing them to be as best you can, allowing them to be just as they are. Cradled in awareness. And then step two, narrowing, gathering the attention, placing it on the breath. And then step three, expanding the attention to take in the whole body, sitting here or standing here. Allowing your body to be just as it is. A sense of coming home to the body. And then allowing the eyes to open if they've been closed, moving your fingers and toes, taking in the room again. So let's come to this week's theme, finding your ground. Imagine you're in a bar or cafe. You're trying to focus on the conversation, but there's a flicker of a screen in the corner of your eye from a TV on the wall. You keep trying to get back to the conversation, but it's hard to ignore the screen. At some point you succeed, but then you sense a shadow of a looming object behind you, and you turn to see someone you don't know moving quickly to greet a friend. It's nothing to do with you, and you go back to the conversation. But it's obviously not your day for focusing, for after a while, you hear your own name being used on the other side of the room, and you've, you've lost it again, you've gone again. A flicker in the corner of your eye, a looming object, your own name. What these have in common is that they are nigh impossible to ignore. Your brain has evolved a salience network and it does what it says on the tin. It monitors the world outside and inside for any information that might carry an important message about the possible need to stop and change what you're doing. I mentioned earlier that the brain relies on predicting what's most likely to happen. All the time, it's comparing its prediction with real time information to check for surprises, prediction errors. If such an error or surprise is detected, attention is switched towards the source of the surprise. Sometimes no adjustment is needed, but for an instant, there is uncertainty that needs to be resolved, attended to, action that might be needed, the body getting ready. Attention is drawn to any part of your world that is new because what is new is uncertain, less predictable. So more data is required to resolve the uncertainty. Now a flicker in the corner of your eye or a looming object are what you might call hardwired distractors. It's not hard to see why all animals need to be sensitive to movements in their peripheral vision. It signals the possible presence of predators. The fact that you keep being distracted by a television above the bar reveals your animal ancestry. I don't know whether that's reassuring or not. 
but there are some things that distract you, not because they are hardwired, but because they are of concern to you in other ways. Hearing your own name in a crowded room is one example, but hearing someone across the room talking about a topic that is salient also draws your attention. If you were trying to buy or sell a house and someone used the word zoopla on the other side of the room, at least in the UK, your attention would be caught as well. Other house buying sites are available. The zoopla effect represents the conditioned capture of attention, the conditioned capture of attention, but it shares with the older hardwired attentional capturing that the brain is still trying to work out what action is needed. So these examples show us that even if we've decided to focus on one thing, like when we're meditating, and decided to ignore sounds or other thoughts and put what we want center stage, our attention continues to monitor the sides of the stage, the wings. It continues to monitor the world all the time, just in case, the world outside and the world inside. And if we hear something of interest to us, sense something of interest to us, like our name, we lose concentration because we've jumped the tracks and are now attending to that conversation. We find it hard to listen to both because the predictive aspect of the mind is now turned towards an alternative source of data. It's working hard on alternative possible actions and those actions are incompatible with these actions. Only when we've done some check on what's distracting us are we likely to be able to switch our attention back. But here's the thing. If we are very distracted, if what's taking us away is very disturbing or compelling, coming back is hard if the place to come back to is not giving us a very strong signal. Now, traditionally in meditation, the breath has been used as an anchor to come back to, to stabilize the mind. But for some, it's not so helpful, either because we might have had a problem in breathing, we might have asthma, we might have a cold, uh, we might, in the current pandemic, be worried about that or have experience of breathing difficulties, or perhaps a relative or friend has, but also because for many, breathing our breath doesn't provide a strong signal for us. So week one offers the chance to explore alternative anchors for attention. The feet, the contact with seat or mat, and the hands. And this means you have a number of choices of where to put your attention when it feels very distracted, so it can find its way back more readily. Now, if the breath for you has been your best ally, don't worry, it will still be there for you. But it may still be interesting to explore the alternative anchors, to get a taste of the different qualities that each brings. And just a note about looking after yourself for these eight weeks before we uh, embark on the meditation. The practice of mindfulness sometimes brings us into close contact with difficulties, difficult sensations, thoughts, feelings and impulses to act. Learning to respond wisely to these difficulties is of course at the heart of any mindfulness course, but it can take time. And no matter how experienced we are at practicing mindfulness, some thoughts or feelings, pleasant or unpleasant, can hijack our best intentions from time to time. They might be memories or regrets or daydreams or plans or worries. And challenges can arrive at any time, of course, whether we're meditating or not. Sometimes they go as quickly as they come. Sometimes they stay around, they become sticky and adhesive. And it can happen no matter how long you've been meditating. It's not about being a good or a bad meditator. So at the start of the course, it's useful to remind yourself to go at a pace that feels right for you. We'll be using a range of meditations that are aimed at exploring different ways to free us from what gets us stuck. At any time, you can decide to take a break from the course or from meditation in the course. If things get overwhelming, even during a meditation, then be your own guide. Drop my guidance completely. Maybe open your eyes, look around. Let your awareness include all the things you can see and hear. Ground yourself. It's your choice, always. So now, 
if you're ready, we'll do this week's meditation. And you can do this sitting on a chair or a stool or a cushion. If you have a stool or a cushion there, feel free to use it. If you're sitting on a chair, a cushion under the chair or a, um, often just raises your hips so they're higher than your knees. Or you can lie down. Feel free, completely free to lie down on a mat or a rug. So spending a few minutes now just bringing your awareness in whatever posture you decide. So taking that time to lie down or, or to find your sitting posture. And when you found your posture, spending a few moments bringing your awareness to your whole body. Letting your eyes close if that feels comfortable or lowering your gaze. But remembering you can open your eyes at any time or keep them open if that feels most comfortable for you. Just letting your gaze land somewhere on some object softly. The whole body sitting here or lying here. Now at a certain point, bringing your attention to your feet. So moving the spotlight of attention all the way down the body to your feet. And noticing what sensations are here when your attention arrives. The toes. Soles of the feet. The instep. the heel, if you're sitting, noticing the contact of the bottom of the feet on the floor, if you're lying, maybe the heels in contact with the mat or the floor, alive to any and all sensations in the feet, including the top of the feet as well. See if it's possible to notice the changing, fluxing nature of the sensations as they come and go. If there are very few or no sensations here, just registering a blank, no right or wrong. Noticing if the mind begins to wander onto other things how easy it is for us to assume we've, we've, we've looked at the feet, we know what's there. And so we put it on a sort of a video loop going round and round and stop noticing the actual feet. We're just now working on an, a loop. So see if you can go back to the actual feet and you'll know it by the changing sensations. Sensing. And now taking a deeper breath and on the out breath, letting go of the feet and moving the spotlight of attention to the contact of the body on the chair, the seat of the chair, if you're sitting 
or the stool or cushion, or if you're lying down, any points of contact between yourself and the mat or the floor, probably the lower legs and the buttocks and lower back and shoulders and head. So we're tuning into the contact, the sense of gravity. If you're sitting, the seat of the chair. And once again, spending some time, we'll just have a few moments of silence where you can practice opening to the sensations here. Now taking a deeper breath and on the out breath, letting go of the points of contact and shifting the spotlight of attention to the hands. Fingers, thumbs, backs of the hands, palms. And noticing especially the contact once again, a point of gravity where you notice the weight of the hands and the contact they're making on the floor or the hand or the, your thighs. On your lap, on each other. Now taking a deeper breath and on the out breath, letting go of the hands and coming to the breath itself and just choosing one place where you feel the breath moving, the nose or nostrils perhaps or back of the throat or the chest or the abdomen. Making a choice and settling in, resting your attention lightly on the sensations that come with each in-breath and each out breath and the spaces in between. And now making a choice, either staying with the breath or choosing to return to one of the other anchors, possible anchors, feet, contact with chair or stool, or cushion or the ground, the hands, or staying with the breath. So making your choice now And then allowing the attention to rest lightly on the place that you've chosen.
if you find the mind wanders away from or scans for other things apart from what you've chosen, your intended focus, then simply noticing that and very gently bringing the attention back to your chosen anchor, feet, seat or contact, the hands or the breath. And then for the last few moments of the sitting, returning to a sense of the whole body sitting or lying here. And perhaps reminding ourselves that this body is available and these anchors are available any time of day or night indeed, to anchor ourselves back into the present moment. The feet, the seat, the hands, or the breath. And that we can explore, we can experiment, try combinations or switching one for the other during the week. Just being creative and exploring with an open mind about what we'll discover. So letting your eyes open, moving around, moving your fingers and toes, taking in the room again. So now I'm going to hand back to Willem, who's going to organize how the Q&A will go and uh, it's over to you, Willem. Thank you. So the first thing to say is um, we've had a lot of really fantastic questions and I wish we could speak to all of them, but um, we only have about um, 10 or so minutes. So what I've done is selected the ones that I think will speak most to people and are most relevant to the theme of this evening. Um, so I'm going to pick a couple. Um, the first one I'm going to pick, Mark, is a really interesting question about the examples you used about um, how the mind is drawn to um, the TV screen, um, potentially our name and so on. But this person um, says that actually most of the distractions in her or his experience were internal. <laughs> Within it was an internal mind generating the same equipment. And could you speak a little bit to that, please? Yeah. So uh, that's, I think, many people's experience, of course, especially when you're meditating. Um, and in fact, the principle is exactly the same, that frankly, the brain doesn't make much distinction between the outside world and the inside world. Um, the, it, it works to represent the outside world. But of course, once the outside world has been taken into the darkness of the brain, um, it's all it's all the same. It's outside, inside, inside, outside. Mm -hmm. So your mind can also generate your own name and sensations can generate. In fact, there's now a sense that some of the sensations in your body act like commands. Um, you know, there's a difference between saying, Bill is opening the door and Bill, open the door. Uh, Bill is opening the door is a statement which may be true or false, but Bill, open the door uh, is a command. It can only be instantiated. Mm -hmm. Now many of our sensations and thoughts come in the form, almost the form of commands. Look at me, attend to me. 
um, like an itch, for example, is an obvious bodily sensation, or an urge to eat when you're tired, um, or hearing your own name or a, a self-critical thought. Not, it's not just a thought, it's almost a command to attend. So I think that question is a really good one. Um, and the, um, the, the, um, the answer is exactly the same, that the, the mind switches to attend to that stream. We'll say a little bit next week about where that's represented um, and what happens. And the fact that it's not just what you're telling yourself or what you're feeling, but all the counterfactuals, all the things that might have happened. But thanks for that question, it's a good one. So I've got three more questions, um, Mark, which I've picked out. So in terms of you and I pacing ourselves, see if we can get through three more questions. The next one is a, a really interesting question, which I'm sure many people on this call can relate to, which is, um, yes, I found, as you said, my experience of MBCT transformational. And as you said, my practice kind of drops off. And um, what are your suggestions about how I can keep my practice alive so that when I need it at times of struggle, which is when I do practice, it's actually available to me? Good question. I think one of the things is that um, you can come back anytime um, and you can start small. So just one minute. If you have you know, forgotten where you left your cushion or your stool or your chair that you used to sit on, just get it out, put it there and forget it. And then maybe the next day, go and sit for one minute. Um, one minute will give you a sample of what it was like, a memory of what it was like. And uh, it's an, an, the, you can let the seed drop, small seed drop. So don't think I must get back to the best time I had when I remember I was sitting for an hour a day every morning. Um, just do what you can. And it can be very small uh, to get back. Now, sometimes there are periods in our life when just it's chaos. We're traveling or we might have young children. Um, and uh, in that case, allow the children or your traveling to be your mindfulness practice. So you can be with your children in a mindless way or you can be with your children in a mindful way. They can become uh, your teachers, your, your mindfulness bells, if you like. And, uh, and notice how oftentimes we don't just say to ourselves, oh, I've, I've forgotten, I'd like to get back to my mindfulness practice. Notice the critic that comes there as well and see if it's possible to say, I hear what you say, but is there any other voice in there that can, uh, that can lead me back? Um, because the critic often uh, isn't the thing that's going to get you back to your cushion. Great. So the next question is a sort of um, sort of theoretical one, if you like. Um, it comes from somebody who's clearly very familiar with Buddhist psychology and says that the, you're using the word um, feeling tone, which is clearly related to the uh, a term in Buddhist psychology um, of Vedana. Why, why not call it Vedana and how does it relate? You know, how does the psychological and the Buddhist relate to each other here? Um, and how does one honor the Buddhist and integrate that with, I, I think I'm adding a little bit to the question, but I don't think I'm losing the question. Yeah. yeah. So what, it's a good question. How, how, how best can you honor these ancient traditions? And one is to throw the gate wide to people who can taste it for themselves. And we know there are some parts of the world that they won't even get a chance to taste it if it comes with the Pali or Sanskrit language. And therefore we have to be trying to be faithful to learn from people, um, the Buddhist scholars and, the, and, and monks who can teach us how to understand this in a way that's authentic and then to put it in our own uh, contemporary language so it's accessible to everybody. And I think that's the important thing. And the question is quite right. It is Vedana. Um, and if you want to listen to extra talks on it, you might find that Vedana is the word that's used. But, you know, Joseph Goldstein uses mindfulness of feelings and then describes it as being the feeling tone. Um, so there are lots of different ways in. And this is the way we choose to do it, to see if it's possible to throw the gate wide so it's available to everybody. Great. Thank you. So the next question is um, one that I guess you could you could speak to, I'm sure, for hours. But it's a question about we are in the midst, depending on what country you're in, of the COVID um, pandemic. And what are your thoughts about the way in which mindfulness has a role to play um, in the midst of this pandemic? 
I think it's about stabilization. I mean, there are three pillars, three things that mindfulness teaches uh, above everything else. One is stabilizing, calming, stabilizing. The second is um, uh, insight, clear seeing. And the third is kindness. And each one of those, if you only take, if you take one out, everything else collapses. You need the three there, like a tripod. Um, uh, you know, if you take away one, one leg of a tripod, then the whole thing collapses. So each of those are needed, but certainly stability, the sense of, of, of um, knowing where our ground is in the midst of everything that's happening, clear seeing to distinguish fact from fiction, um, and, and kindness to ourselves and other people um, where the, the conditions often are not kind. Um, we have to delay and put off and inhibit things that we'd naturally like to do, like being with other people. Um, I think that mindfulness has a lot to say. It's not the only thing that helps, but it has a lot to say. Um, I think the final question um, that I was going to pick out for um, this evening, um, and then I don't know if Mark, you want to, there's any other things you want to say before we close, but why is the curriculum called Mindfulness frame by frame well that's it's not actually i mean that was just the this is <laughs> i don't know what it's called um uh but it's it's called that for these purposes because when we talked about how will she how will we call it um uh we didn't know what else to call it it might stick it might not um uh but and it sounded less clunky than feeling tone um but there is something about what we're doing here, which it speaks to. Feeling tone, the sense of pleasant or unpleasantness, is part of every mindfulness curriculum. Um, but you tend to go past it quite quickly. There's the reference to pleasant and unpleasant events activities in session two, three, four. Um, there's an allusion to whether it's pleasant or unpleasant when you taste the raisin, for example, or the chocolate, or um, and. Uh, in MBCT, it comes in session four when you begin to recognize aversion. Um, but um, it's pretty implicit. In fact, um, there's a book that was you mentioned earlier, The Mindful Way Through Depression. Um, and uh, John Teasdale and I and Zindel Siegel and John Kabat-Zinn, uh, there were actually four books we wrote. And what book was published was the fourth, uh, because there were three whole books that we weren't happy with or the publishers weren't happy with. And one early chapter that we wrote um, never made it into the final cut um, and is still around somewhere, I guess. And it was on feeling tone. And one of the reasons why we dropped it is because there's no explicit meditation to address it in the curriculum in MBSR and MBCT. It's implicit, but it's not brought out, brought out and examined explicitly. And and yet, as the quote from Joseph tells us, and as other witnesses attest, and as my experience and those who tried this, it's absolutely central. Now you can't put everything into an eight week course. Things had to be dropped. And um, a lot of the debate around mindfulness is, is, is what is captured and what's left out. And so in designing something which people could, which would offer people a new way into mindfulness, our um, interest was in taking this thing and expanding it because you need to see it frame by frame. And the, the analogy comes from the, the early photographers um, who wanted to look at things like, do a horse's hooves ever come off the ground at the same time? And, uh, uh, and the pioneer photographer who did that set up 12 cameras and an electro uh, thing with, 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 with um, uh, a bit of wire across the course, which wasn't big wire, it didn't trip the horse up, that wouldn't have been very good. Um, and, but it, it trip switched the cameras and 12 cameras and you saw and was revealed for the very first time that actually horses hooves do actually, uh, there is a point where they all come off the ground but you needed those 12 cameras. You needed frame by frame by frame to see what's happening. Now, when you look at Vedana, mindfulness of feeling tone, you need that degree of 
uh, frame by frame. And so it's not surprising that it's missed out um, in eight week courses. There just isn't the time to do it justice. But what we are evolving and this course that people have signed up for now is part of that evolution, a way of, um, uh, of, of slowing things down to really look in detail at this one aspect of mindfulness in the hope and the experience that if you go narrow, go really narrow, you'll go through this narrow gap and what will open to you on the other side is a whole new vista, a whole new way of being. So with that, Willem, I'll hand back to you to finish off the evening and to say goodbye to everybody. So maybe, thank you, Mark. And maybe just on that sense of the vista, just asking everybody to um, turn their attention inwards to a sense of the vista of your mind and body just now. Maybe come back to one of those anchor points that Mark pointed to with feet or a um, connection with the seat or if you're lying down some other place just bring that inner vista to a sense of being grounded in your body and a sense of your body in this moment moment by moment frame by frame the sensations of breathing The sensations of breathing and the sensations, if it's possible to tune into this, of your heart beating. Now, here's the thing. As you tune into your body and your heart beating, see if you can expand your awareness out to a sense of the 1,600 people also breathing, also their heart beating. In this moment, on this call, live right now. Just expanding your awareness out from your own breath, your own body, to all those other people in 57 different countries. A few people have asked in the chat, is this exchange between Mark and I pre-recorded? No, it's absolutely live in this moment, this moment right now. And this moment means for our Asian colleagues, the middle of the night, for our Australian friends and our friends in New Zealand, it means very early in the morning. For our friends in the Americas, on the West Coast, it means much earlier in the day. Thank you. So I'll just say a few practical things before we close. Um, those of you who are used to a slightly different format, um, the reason we've changed to this format is because it's much more stable for larger numbers. So. Um, uh, what we want to try and do is provide um, a really good experience for you and this format of the Zoom webinar format supports that. Um, we will, um, I didn't pick out in the questions a whole bunch of practical questions and questions that people might ask as teachers or about Mark and his work and whether this will appear as a book, those kinds of things. Um, I think what we'll do is um, some of the practical questions we'll pick up as um, in emails that will go out to you um, in between time, in between the sessions. And then the final thing I'd say is that these sessions will be recorded so that those of you who'd like to listen to them again, will have them available um, as uh, podcasts in all the usual outlets, Spotify and Podbean and so on. And they'll also be available to obviously other people beyond that and freely available as well. So just as we close, I think what I'd like to suggest we do by way of closing is if you can just maybe if it feels appropriate to you um, to use the chat function, as many of you already are doing, is just to um, and I open the chat um, so that you can see what's flowing through the chat, just to maybe register a sense of whatever's around for you in the vista of your mind and body as we bring this session to a close. A real sense of gratitude I can see. Appreciation and connection and community.
And I love the fact that we can learn the words thank you and gratitude in all the many different languages of the people on this call. Wonderful. Great. Thank you very much indeed. And, and thank you, Mark, for getting us off to a good start. And we look forward to seeing you all back here um, again next week. Thank you very much and, uh, and uh, have a good rest of the day um, and a good week and see you back next week.